Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street, London, England, and I'm delighted now to be joined by Scott Newstock. Scott Newstock is Professor of English and founding director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College, a parent and an award-winning teacher. He's the author of Quoting Death in Early Modern England and the editor of several other books. He lives in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm delighted to be talking to Scott today about his new book, the title of which is How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. And it's a fascinating book, uh, very erudite indeed. But um, first of all, Scott, explain the title. What do you mean by How to Think Like Shakespeare? Well, I think one of the things that I was working towards as I drafted the book was thinking back to some really wonderful how-to books in the spirit of the 16th century, the kinds of how-to books he might have read growing up or that might have been active for or available for other artists or craftspeople around that time. So it's really the kind of the first age, at least in English publication of a flourishing of how to manuals. And I wanted it to be a kind of a manual and something handy in that same spirit of a handbook. But I'm overall trying to, I guess, elaborate more of a educational philosophy than a simple checklist. So the, the subtitle is trying to push back a little bit at the title it makes it sound like it's just how to think like Shakespeare, but in fact, I'm trying to revivify a whole series of lessons from 16th century Renaissance education that helped shape minds like his and other minds from that era. Yeah, so the subtitle of the book is Lessons from a Renaissance Education. Um, and it sounds like you're a bit alarmed by modern education and you think we've lost something vital, hence this harking back to the notion of a Renaissance education, not just in a historical sense, but it, but it, but in the fullest sense of that word. Tell us a little bit about what concerns you about modern-day education. Well, the book really emerged out of two, I guess, converging strands of my life. One is a teacher, and the last decade or so I've been reading some really fascinating work about Shakespeare's education, the material practices of the theater in which he worked, how people collaborated and their writing in this period. So that's been really exciting and that's been enriching for me in my own pedagogy and my own teaching and trying to frame, I guess, Shakespeare's work as not something that's isolated, but rather that emerges out of a really wonderful intellectual and educational climate in the 16th century. And then at the same time, the other track of my life has been, I'm, I'm a parent of children who are in school and they're progressing through various stages in their own education. And they have had some fantastic teachers and fantastic schools and they've had some interactions that have been less than fantastic in part, I think, because of a whole series of educational reforms that have taken place, certainly in the United States, but I also know in the United Kingdom and globally over the last couple of decades. So it, in some ways, the book is me trying to puzzle out some of the things that I think are still valuable about a conventional Shakespearean education um, that are still alive for us and, and rich for us today and that maybe we've forgotten unnecessarily in our, our move towards the new or to the novel or whatever the latest pedagogy is. And one of the opening questions in the book is, what is an education? And I find this really important and fascinating because I think a lot of education is thrown at people without either students or teachers asking that fundamental question. And I'll, I'll tell you uh, an anecdote that will bore many of my regular listeners because I've told it over and over <laughs> again when I've discussed with medical students what is an education, what they've said 
back to me. But let me put it to you that one of the things I thought was fascinating was you start off with this question, um, what is an education? And I think you believe that's not really asked often enough. What is what, what are we all in this classroom to do? What is an education? What are your thoughts about that? And what's your answer to that question? Well, I play I play off of that great word, end. And there's a, there's a number of terrific books that have the title, The End of Education, that are meant to play off of the multiple intonations of that word. So in some ways, that means the kind of end goal or the terminus of education, but it also means that larger, more philosophical or ambitious sense of what are we trying to do in, in education more generally? And here I'm fairly conventional in thinking that this is something akin to the Aristotelian sense of education, which is it's a it's a practice in human flourishing. That that's the long-term goal is that after you work through these stages of this education, you will eventually become a fully functioning human being that is participatory in society and able to speak well on behalf of things that you care about in the world. So I think I think in some ways our our language or maybe our lexicon about how we describe education today tends to be fixated more on short-term ends or short-term utility rather than the long-term utility, which I'd, I'd like to think we, we all subscribe to about general gen, general human flourishing. And um, you, you say that one of the blind alleys education's gone down, uh, one of the intellectual dead ends or cul-de-sacs, is the notion of testing and measurement, um, whereas you believe education is a much deeper thing than that. And picking up on the point about the Aristotelian view, the ancient Greek view was that citizens took part in society and they were they were useful functioning members of society. So they didn't just vote, they, they participated in democracy. It was a participatory thing. And going to the trial of Socrates, you know, several hundred of them would turn up to, to trial. So this notion <coughs> of, of education as something where you, you it helps you participate in society is extremely important to you. Could you say something about that? It is indeed. The I guess the, in a way, I, I think the parallel in education to the larger participation in society is thinking about education or any form of learning as something more like a craft than a set of discrete skills. So I guess going back to my own experience with my children's education, I guess one thing that's been frustrating in very much assessment-driven world that the United States has been in for the last 20 years has been the sense that um, education is fragmentary and can be broken down into kind of the, the smallest atomistic units rather than something that's much more holistic and dynamic and ongoing that you need to practice doing through throughout your entire life. So in that sense, education is participatory and ongoing rather than uh, something that has a terminus or something that has a narrow sense of an, sense of an end. And so the, at least in the United States, the, the drive towards a certain form of, I think, unfortunately narrow-minded testing has been, it's, it's foreshortened kind of the wonderful potential of education that I, I like, to, again, I would like to think that many of us would subscribe to. And another thing you say in the book, in the early part of the book, is that, that to you, um, to be an educated person, or education is about how to think, um, which I found a, a startling um, suggestion. Um, could you tell us a bit about what you mean, or what you're referring to, about this notion of how to think? Well, you know, there's a, there's a funny quip uh, that uh, Supreme Court Justice of the United States once said about uh, pornography, that he, that you can recognize it when you see it. And I think we all can recognize thinking when we see it, and we can, we can recognize the lack of thinking when we see it. I guess the 
again, going back to my, my perception of the, the fixation in the United States of education in this last few years, these last few decades on uh, very discrete, measurable things that are either add up to memorizing things for a test or coming up with strategies about how best to do on the test rather than looking beyond the test to think about the long-term goal that you want to achieve. So I, I bring up in the book the, the analog of archery, which I think fits very well. If you if you talk to any trained archer, you realize, you find out very quickly that the best way to hit a target is not just to aim at the target, it's to practice form and do all the kinds of things that you need to do to aim beyond the target, and then you, you end up hitting the target as a result of doing those longer-term aims or those longer-term goals. So, you know, for me, the this is education is not just about the memorization of facts, as Einstein likes to quip, or it's not just the application of logic. As, as I cite Niels Bohr, another physicist, it's it's something else. It's something that's much more dynamic and ongoing. And I think I think the kind of education that Shakespeare experienced in the 16th century Tudor classroom was that wasn't really the goal was to get them to think it was get to get them to be fluent in Latin. But a fascinating byproduct of all the exercises that they did was that it made made the conditions right for a certain kind of agile thinker to really flourish in in that world. And my experience of teaching medical students is they're really obsessed with grades and, and the final score. And they, yeah. they want to they know how to get a good grade. And what I think I'm saying, and I think what you're saying is, be interested in the subject, educate yourself in the subject, have a deep interest in the subject, and you'll naturally get a good grade. It, it'll, it'll arrive naturally. Just, but, but the grade is a side effect of a deep understanding of the subject. And this is very and can, difficult to get over to students today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it can actually become a block. Uh, it, it, it can become a, a, a thing that impedes you to do well on the grade, paradoxically, by fixating so much on the grade that you end up kind of freezing up in part because you're that's what you're worried about rather than the larger ambitions that you have to have the, the more general understanding of, of the subject. So I can, you know, there's a number of examples that I bring up of contemporary teachers complaining about and students, contemporary students, complaining about the mode of education that they have now, which leads to what they call re regurgitating something on a test, which is a pretty disgusting image of of what education is. That's a fairly narrow and, and kind of gross uh, thing that to imagine that education is a form of vomiting. And a much better model is the model that Montaigne picks up from Seneca and many other writers, which is the model of something like uh, a bee gathering the material that eventually gets transformed into honey. And so there's something that's about a higher level of digestion or processing than a short-term model of just taking something in quickly and then expert, uh, ex getting it out of your body as quickly as you possibly can. Again, another analog here I think I bring up in the book is um, Stuart Firestein has a great book called Ignorance, which you might be familiar with, Ignorance, How It Drives Science. And he was sick of his students. He's a, he's a neuroscientist. He was sick of his students just wanting the grade and just regurgitating stuff that he said verbatim on the test. So what he ended up doing was creating a really fascinating seminar where he invited his colleagues at Columbia to come in and talk about the boundaries of what they don't know in their discipline. So we would bring in a physicist to talk about speculations about dark matter, and he would bring in colleagues from all kinds of different fields to say, here's what we don't know, and this is actually where the real fascinating boundary of knowledge takes place rather than, I mean, you, you of course need to know the stuff, you still need to, there's stuff you have to memorize, but you're memorizing it and you're thinking through the amassing that body of knowledge for a greater end, which is to push those those boundaries of knowledge. 
And, and what's really interesting about that, it harks back to me, and, and you know much more about this than I do, so I, I, I am nervous about using this example. <laughs> uh, Socrates' trial, famously at Socrates' trial, he was uh, on trial for, it is said, corrupting the youth of Athens and, it, and the, the, the crime of impiety. Um, the, the rulers of Greece were very worried that everyone thought of Socrates as the wisest man in Greece, because if you had this wise man down in the marketplace being the wisest man in Greece, why would you pay any attention to the rulers? So he goes to trial, and uh, the, the defence... Um, is that actually Socrates never claims to know anything. He always starts from the standpoint of ignorance and questions what you claim to know. And he machine guns you with questions when he says, what is love? What is truth? What is justice? And you come up with an answer. And he machine guns your answer with relentless questioning and your answer unravels and it's revealed that you don't really know what truth, justice or love Mm -hmm. is. So the true wisdom of Socrates is that he knows when he doesn't know. And, and that's where true wisdom lies. And I, I think you're alluding, in a way, to that point. The true intellectual is someone who is able to be comfortable with the boundaries of what, of what they don't know. And, and they're interested in correcting their ignorance. So they're, they're open to being t- to their ignorance, as it were. It's, it's central to the notion of what wisdom is. Yeah, it's, and it's generative. It's not, this is not to overvalorize ignorance. Again, I, 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 one of the things I try to do throughout the book is, is try to undo some either or binaries like either education is about memorization of stuff or it's a kind of over valorization of creativity a kind of ignorant creativity and what i'd like to try to point out in most cases is that those things are in a kind of dance or or balance with each other but the point about socrates that i think carries over into the educational system that shakespeare would have grown up in is that it was a it was a very dialogue oriented system and that you know that goes back to the Platonic dialogues, but it also carries through classical tradition and medieval traditions of thought working itself out in a dialogue. And in part of learning how to think is thinking about positioning yourself in a dialogue with other minds, both present and past, as well as eventually kind of becoming in a dialogue with yourself, or at least being able to kind of pursue thoughts through a multifaceted perspective rather than thinking that you have the one answer. So, you know, that there are all kinds of little fun pedagogical exercises that were were characteristic of the Tudor classroom that encouraged that kind of dialogue. Uh, one great example that Erasmus loved to encourage was to say, take a position and defend it as well as you can, and then flip 180 degrees and argue the exact opposite of that position. So this is something that you know Tibetan monks do and they're debating, and this is something that's trained in law school to argue both sides of the position. But it really does create a, a more flexible mind that can see many sides of the same issue and you can see inadvertently that 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 happens to set you up to be a good dramatist it wasn't the it wasn't the immediate goal of that pedagogy there was no professional theater in london when shakespeare was a student but it turns out that this training in multi-sided dialogic interactive writing turns out to be a really good really good training for the kind of stuff that we love about drama which is in commensurate positions trying to work out contradictory stances on stage in relationship to each other. And and one of the reasons why this is a really apposite and, and very timely discussion with the virus and the pandemic is the notion of online learning, that you can replace education, i.e. a teacher and a student in a dialogue together physically in the same place with an app um, or, or an algorithm of some description that you can 
make education automatic or technological. So you mount quite a spirited <clears throat> defence in the book of this notion of the... Phys- there's a chapter devoted to the notion of place, that education <clears throat> occurs in a particular place and the physicality of that place is important. And this notion of, of human contact, the human argument between two people, as being essential to what an education is. Could you say something about those th- those points? Right. So, you know, the first thing I would say is that everyone that I know has done the best that they can with the online fora that they've been forced to use by the emergency. So I'm, I, I hope it's clear, you know, the book was written before the pandemic. So I'm not, it's not a criticism of the fora per se, but rather, I think that there is, there, there are motivations for a certain technological fetishization or over idealization of those fora as being the same or even better than, than human in, in-person interaction. And in some fascinating ways, this emergency scenario has, I think, reminded us of some on the surface things that appear to be almost basic to the point of remedial, like sitting in a room together for 50 minutes or 75 minutes, or being at a table together and looking at each other in the eye, or being able to tell when someone's rolling their eyes or someone's shuffling their feet. Those are all things that are basic, but actually really important for a certain kind of set of human dynamic interactions to take place. Uh, but you're also emphasizing the notion that getting an education is a profoundly human experience. It can't, at some level, be automated. Going back to the platonic dialogue, that the dialogue picks up on the particular objection of the speaker and personalizes the conversation. Um, so there's something yeah. about that, that human contact that you believe is at the heart of education and that you seem worried in the book is, is going to get um, lost, that education is going to lose that human contact. And you believe that's fundamental to what an education is. Well, I think if if you listen carefully to a lot of the kind of techno futurists who are very eager to accelerate certain kinds of programs, they 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 often they're very frequently quite blunt about their distaste for or even hostility to human interaction. So, I, just to pick pick on one example, that but a very prominent example, Nick, Nicholas Negroponte, who is at MIT and has long been an advocate for digital educational technology recently in an interview said that he would love to take a pill that would give him all of Shakespeare. And, you know, in some ways that's a, it's a kind of William Gibson-esque fantasy of investing knowledge, but it's not really digesting knowledge. And it seems like a strange thing to want to have all of Shakespeare in your head without the experience of having engaged with a performance or a reading or a discussion. I mean, it just seems very odd to me. And of course it it would be a great shortcut as a fantasy on one level, but it, it, it almost misses the whole point of the experience. And so in, I guess the analog for education would then be, you know, sadly, a lot of us, I think a lot of students and even some faculty would like magically to have such pills that they could hand out to the classes and have everyone know everything that they want them to know. But that in effect, it's, it's missing the dynamic interactive exchange that you were just describing with the platonic dialogue as well. But that's this is this is targeted to this particular individual who's resistant in this particular way. And this other interlocutor interrupts and jumps in and poses something else. And that brings the conversation in a new direction that you'd never anticipated. That's that's nonlinear. It's dynamic. It's 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 hard to reproduce in a in a more linear format. That's been at least that's been my experience so far. 
And, I mean, one example that you cite in the book is one famous platonic dialogue where he uses, by drawing in the sand, a geometric diagram uh, where he talks to a slave who's not meant to know any geometry. And Socrates is showing um, in this conversation with the slave by asking the right question, the slave comes to know the answer to the geometric puzzle. But it's very tailored to the answers given by that particular slave um, who's meant Mm -hmm. to know nothing. So the, the other really interesting thing about that dialogue, it's a very liberating view of education. Anyone can learn and anyone can learn anything. So it's a fundamentally optimistic idea at the heart of that particular Socratic dialogue. I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, I, I hope that that spirit animates the entire book. The, the, the premise of the book is that this is great stuff that should be available to everyone. And for all kinds of complicated reasons, we've curtailed some of these practices and capacities. That particular anecdote, I think, really hits at the heart of what you're describing. And it also comes at the end of the chapter on technology, where I'm I'm just trying to be very careful about saying I'm not anti-technology. I, I think we've always had technology in education going back to as something as simple as drawing these figures in the sand, but it's a mistake to to conflate or to equate the technology with the method. You know, you, again, this gets back to ends. Like, why are you why are you drawing those figures in the sand? Well, it's tailored to that individual, and it's the best thing for that that person at that moment in time. And it's not something that can be done in the same way without the interaction present there. So, I just again, I'm. I'm trying to balance out, I think, a series of unhelpful oppositions, like either you're for technology or you're against technology. And there are all kinds of technologies that we use in the classroom, including books, which are a longstanding, important, crucial technology, or blackboards or tables or even something like a clock that are not digital technology, but they are forms of shaping time and space together that are crucial and effective and long-standing and things that we're very quick to kind of dismiss when we're looking to the next glossy new digital technology. Now, um, about the pandemic, what was interesting to me about the pandemic, which was a sudden emergency that people had never thought about before, it seems, and had never encountered before, was it exposed some of the critiques you're making in your book about the failure of the education system to help people to think because they were presented with a very new set of circumstances they'd never confronted before. So they had to start thinking, it seems to me, in a way they'd never thought before. And what they did, generally speaking, was turn to other people to do the thinking for them. So they turned to governments to tell tell us what to do. They turned to scientists to say, tell us what to think or how to think about this. And what they discovered many months later or quite later in the day was that was not necessarily a sensible thing to do because in the face of great uncertainty um, governments weren't necessarily reliable and and had their own problems and a famous catchphrase that happened over here I don't know if it happened in America was the government kept saying government ministers kept saying we're following the science which is such an intellectually bankrupt statement if you know anything (laughs) about science Mm -hmm. (laughs) because scientists don't agree with each other so the notion they were following the science as if somehow that meant that we should be reassured that they were following something was very <laughs> was a very worrying statement because anyone who knows anything about science knows that most scientists disagree about stuff. And so, you know, it kind of like begged the question rather than was really a very reassuring answer at all. It was a very worrying answer. So what do you think about the fact that in a way, I think the pandemic emergency exposed much more saliently and much more in an everyday practical sense, the points you're making, that people, despite the fact, like America, for example, North America, where you're from, has some of the most 
you know, high, highly rated um, elite educational institutions in the world, and yet has done very badly in terms of its coping response to the pandemic. What, what, are, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it, the, I guess as you're speaking, I'm thinking that the, the, the central kind of crux of some of these dynamics relates to the, the issue of authority and how, how humans and institutions accrue authority. And that's not the same thing as authoritarianism or telling you that I'm right. And it's also not the same thing as being right all the time. So the, as you said, following the science is actually a kind of contradiction in its own statement. The, I guess the, the, the thing that I'm, I think I'm wrestling with in the book about authority is the sense that you, you know, we all need to kind of become authors of ourselves and authors of our own lives, but Partly that happens through an ongoing relationship with other authorities, either people from the past or contemporaries whom you respect because of they've accrued that authority. And again, this is trying to undo a, an unhelpful binary of either imagining that there are certain kinds of people who know everything or a very hostile skepticism saying those people don't know anything. And so, you know, the I think the threading that needle is something that you're always trying to do in education, which is recognizing, again, earned authority or accrued authority within limited realms, but also that that authority is fallible and it is prone to revision and to, to being an ongoing dialogue with itself as, as new information and new hypotheses emerge. So I think the, I mean, if anything, the, the Shakespearean spirit, I think, is not necessarily you know, distrust authority, but rather to have a kind of questioning relationship to authority that's open-ended. Uh, so it's, again, trying to get away from giving up on authority or or presuming that there are such people in the world who know everything and that we should trust them exclusively. But is it not the case that I agree that if you hear a scientist and, and what he says or she says is something that you think um, uh, maybe I should follow this, but you are going to have to think about it. Whereas people mm -hmm. wanted a shortcut, they wanted to know what to think, as opposed to, yes. I will listen to what a government person says, then I will think about it, and then make my own decision. They didn't do that. They kind of like, it was kind of like, tell me what to think, or how to think, as opposed to, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to bring something to the party and work this out for myself as well, as listen to the experts. And I think, you know, we all we all want shortcuts, and we all have you know, we're finite beings in the world and we only have so much time. And so there are many, many instances where we do need to trust when someone else tells us something that, but there's, I guess the issue here is the, the judgment of being able to step back and say, this is a circumstance where I need to bring my counter authority to bear or I need to weigh these competing authorities in some way rather than, you know, again, it's a, it's a human fact that we only have so much time. We can't always, always be questioning authority at every single moment of our lives. It would be exhausting and paralyzing. But the, you know, the kind of high point of, of being a fully flourishing human being, I think, is that you know when to trust certain kinds of authorities and when to push back against them. And that's that's a form of judgment that's at a very high level of, of functioning that, that few of us are able to to master at any point in our lives. Okay, so let's go to another thing that you discuss in the book, the notion of craft. I, thought, I found this a particularly interesting chapter, and you tell a wonderful anecdote about a piano tuner that comes to your um, <laughs> impoverished student lodgings to, to tune <laughs> an impossible piano that's really has died a long time ago. Tell us a bit about what, what you are referring to in the notion of craft and, and how that piano tuner anecdote fits into that. Well, when I, 
as I was trying to figure out what was so frustrating about the, the educational reforms that I have seen, they they all felt as if they were, again, very fragmentary, very atomistic, very much breaking down larger, more fascinating ongoing practices that I've, I think we all have seen examples of in our lives of someone being able to do something of whether that's sports or music or maths or anything like that at a very high level, but they didn't, they didn't learn how to do it by following a rigid set of steps. So the, the quick anecdote that I relate in the book about craft is uh, when a piano tuner comes to our, our graduate student housing and is pl- trying to tune this horrible piano that's, that has keys that don't even play, he ends up doing some really bizarre stuff, including taking out a lighter and heating up, I don't have the terminology right, but heating up the arms of the hammer so he can retwist them back into place and they'll keep their their memory of where they're supposed to hit the strings. So as I was watching him do this, and here I am kind of stuck in the middle of my dissertation and feeling frustrated about my academic intellectual life, I'm asking him, you know, did he go to school to become a piano technician? And he says, no, he, he chose to apprentice himself to a master a piano tuner, in part because he wanted the dynamic process of knowledge practice and knowledge transfer and knowledge acquisition from an expert, but not from getting a degree or following a a prescribed set of steps. So I guess that moment really clarified for me a certain set of craft practices that are, they, they feel more accurate to me to what I care about in teaching and what my great teachers have done for me than a more conventional set of kind of skills or things that you might assess on a, on a 10 point scale. So that in, in general, the book is trying to posit or, or help present the idea of craft as a, I think more accurate way to describe great human activity and the, the communities that evolved to share those human activities. Uh, that's more accurate to my sense of what education is at, at its best. So I love this anecdote because I think there's a lot go- more going on. I mean, psychiatrists are obviously in grave danger of overanalyzing stuff. <laughs> But, but for example, I mean, he turns up, right, and the piano is, is really, the average piano tuner who's been trained at the great schools would have turned up and said, listen, mate, this piano is dead. Uh, give up. Give, we'll give it the last rights and get a new piano. But this guy persists in the face of impossible odds, right? So that's the first yes. thing that I find fascinating. So in other words, that's deep education. This guy doesn't give up when it would be easy to give up. He keeps going. And the second thing he does, he does this innovative thing, which no one would have learned in any school. But he's true mastery of the subject is when you do your own thing, which isn't in the textbooks and it works. And he's not afraid to do something that looks really quite bizarre and odd and could set fire to your house. But he does it (laughs) with, with true confidence and it's not in the textbook. So there's a sense of ownership. You really know your subject when you own it so well, you can start to innovate, you can improvise, you can riff on the thing and the final point is this guy doesn't arrive with lots of diplomas you know he hasn't been to harvard or an elite educational institution yet at some level this is deep education in play so it's not about the bricks and mortar it's not about the diploma hanging on the wall it's something much more um, indefinable or ephemeral but he's got it so be very careful about the idea that you will only regard educated people as people who who talk the right way and have um, been to the right institution. It's in nooks and crannies, which you might not, you know, w- w- where they haven't got the brand stamp of the the elite mm-hmm. institution. So I think there's a lot going on in that anecdote. But that may not be that final point may not be what you were trying to say. But I read that. No, into no, no, no. I like that, and I, I think you know the phrase that comes to mind as I was as, as I've thought about him is that that sense of kind of making do 
or you were saying improvise or riffing with existing materials and finding a, a new way to use old things in a new pattern that you might not have expected. And that is a kind of, you were saying mastery, or that's a kind of autonomous work where you know all the moves that you're supposed to make, and you're also able to rearrange those moves to do something great and something that maybe someone hasn't done before. And I think, again, if you think, if you, if you, one thing that's been clear to me in the in the pandemic emergency about teaching is that just having the knowledge, just having the content transfer of knowledge is not sufficient to education. If that were the case, textbooks would have put teachers out of work hundreds of years ago when they were first developed in the in the Middle Ages, in the early Renaissance. So, you know, what's missing? What's the What's the key ingredient that's missing, or how do you how do you solve for that missing ingredient when you're thinking about hmm okay, we've got all this stuff online, we've got recorded lectures, we have textbooks of any topic that you want. So why aren't you learning chemistry on your own? And in in at least in my experience from talking to my students and their frustration with online education has been the the, the lack of motivation of another human being in the room staring at them, nudging them, cajoling them, smiling. Uh, joking, whatever the case might be, to help push them and inspire them to do the kind of high-level work that they want to do. And so I think that was the that was the case with my friend Austin, this piano tuner, who found that relationship with a master piano technician and learned a ton of stuff from that person, and then was able to deploy it on their own in the in a, in a way that we think about great jazz musicians doing, or any any kind of practitioner of a, an art at the highest level. And another very interesting chapter that's linked to this is the notion of, of imitation. You devote a chapter to this, and that imitation um, can lead then to originality. You're on a journey where you may, may have to start off when you don't know much about the subject by imitating to learn the subject, but at the ultimate end, when you're a true master, you are a bit of an original. Um, and that's what this piano tuner was. He was a bit of an original in the way that he worked in the end. So t- talk us through this notion of the transition, the journey from imitation which is really looked down on and, and people are very nervous about, but you're kind of like, again, threading this needle of saying it's not so terrible as long as it's got a purpose to it and as long as in the end you end up speaking with your own voice. Could you say something about that? Sure. It, it, I think, you know, an, an easy analogue that we all recognise is in physical human activity where whether it is sports or dance or things like anything involving the body that it you do need to do things that look very remedial and very basic on the level of imitating the actions or imitating the motions or the moves of another human being. So in all kind, we have all kinds of anecdotes of children who admired their great heroes in sport and they were trying to emulate a certain kind of bodily motion, which they eventually internalize and bring that into the repertory of their own kind of style and then are able to deploy spontaneously at the right moment uh, in a high-pressure event, whether that's a piano concert or a cricket match or whatever the case might be. That, But that process did not start by trying to be original from the beginning. It started really by trying to learn how this chess master made these particular kinds of moves or m- learn how this ballet dancer did the kinds of things that she did or that he did. So that there's that dynamic, I think, that, again, this is one of those, as you said, threading the needle. This is trying to undo an unhelpful contrast or binary of saying there's either imitation, which is bad, or there's creativity, which is good. But in fact, we know from, again, the physical arts and physical performances that imitation is actually a really healthy 
productive developmental stage through which you reach the full levels of human autonomy. And I think one can point to examples of writers and musicians and other kinds of creative artists who also went through that those stages of trying to sound like your favorite poet or trying to sound like your favorite composer. It's an easy, it's a fun game to play when you're looking at the work of a young artist to think about, oh, she's trying to sound like this. And that's actually a very good imitation of that mode or that voice or that style. And eventually she sounds like herself, which is, you know, how that transition happens is hard to figure out and it's hard to pinpoint. But many, many artists and and entrepreneurs and all kinds of people describe that process as being exactly going through early imitation of models and then eventually a certain kind of internalization and blending of those models to their own their own voice or their own activity. Now, the other theme I get from the book, and I, I, you don't really say this explicitly, is the relentless onward march of the STEM subjects, S-T-E-M, science, technology, engineering, maths. Parents all over the world are telling their kids, go and study these subjects because you'll get a job afterwards. And they're kind of pouring cold water when the student says, but I want to learn about Shakespeare. And they were, the, the parents may be saying, but that won't get you a job or you won't learn anything useful. You're, you're not because your own personal journey seems to be that you started off in the STEM area. Um, so mm-hmm. can you say something about the notion that, that maybe you're trying to mount an argument that the truly educated person isn't just someone who, who um, even if they're brilliant at STEM subjects, that you would have missed out on what it is to be an educated person if you don't have some of these elements of the Renaissance education that you're talking about, which is embracing the humanities, not just um, the STEM subjects, which seems to be on an onward, relentless march. Yeah, it's not, again, it's not an either or. It shouldn't be seen as, as, a, as a series of two choices that you have to make. If you, I mean, it's easy to look back at great Renaissance thinkers who were you know, like da Vinci, who were both scientific in experimenters and people that were fantastic at observing the natural world and great drafters and able to draw fantastically, as well as to think about anatomy and, and developmental physiology. I mean, those are those things are not, in a way, they, they shouldn't be seen as distinct activities of the human mind. And one of the great things about going back to the 17th and 16th centuries is that you end up being reminded that you had these fantastic people who we would now describe as multidisciplinary, but in fact, they were living in a kind of pre-disciplinary moment, or at least the modern disciplines that we recognize had yet, not yet been carved off, off into different fields of, of inquiry. So, you know, we have we have all kinds of examples of, of brilliant scientists who came up with world-shattering insights who were also fantastic writers and were eloquent poets and people that were were trying to figure out the world with every every means every every capacity that they had so again i think you know i don't i don't i am very careful not to not to say that this is about humanities versus stem i think it's something almost more fundamental in terms of the way we the way we come to learn about our own thinking processes and the way we come to self autonomy within whatever field of inquiry that we that we have so i hope i hope that didn't come across that i was somehow against them in the same way that i don't want to come across as being against technology but rather you know those things without some balance i think are when we when we get into more more troubling areas or less productive realms in our lives 
Well, I think it's really relevant to medicine because to become a doctor, and it's slightly different to the USA, but certainly in the UK, um, you have to study science A-levels. Either the, the final subjects you study before you leave high school. And so mm-hmm. you have to study maths, physics, chemistry, biology. And that tends to obviously attract a certain kind of student who's a little bit more mathematical or scientifically or engineering based. And then you end up six, seven years at medical school, often studying um um, lab results and the anatomy, which also seems to be an extension of a very scientific view. But then you're you're let loose on the public, and you <laughs> discover that there's a there's a very big human dimension to the medical consultation. That um, mm-hmm. patients have this annoying habit of leaving it to the very last thirty seconds to mention <laughs> the really important thing they really came about. And if you're a little mm-hmm. bit scientifically oriented, you forget the last fifteen seconds and said, "Well, they spent the first five and a half minutes uh, talking about something else. That was what they really wanted to talk about. And um, over and over again, I was having a consultation just the other week talking to a ward, a psychiatric ward, who seemed a little bit trapped by the scientific view. Um, they, they said the patient does want to go home. And I said, well, how do you know that? And they said, because the patient tells us that. Uh, the patient, by the way, was doing nothing that would indicate they wanted to go home. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. They were they were creating crises on the ward, which meant they were going to stay for a long time. So um, I, I was just knocked sideways by the fact when I asked them, well, why do you think the patient wants this? They said, because they say they want that, <laughs> which was a very strange answer from people who should be thinking a little bit more deeply about what it is to be a human being. So so I think it's really at the heart of psychiatry in particular and medicine, this collision between science and the humanities. So that's one of the reasons why I found your book so fascinating, um, that you, you can't be a good doctor if you just know the science. There's a sense in which you have got to have some sense of the humanities. E- even if, as well, given you, you, you've seen a tenth case of the flu that day, and that may be very relevant the pandemic to find people interesting because you are going to have to find people interesting because Mm -hmm. their symptoms are remarkably similar by the time you're a liver specialist you've seen the 20th case that day of people have exactly the same liver symptoms you will want to shoot yourself at the end of the day unless Mm -hmm. you also find people interesting and that reverse back to a renaissance education in my opinion and so there's something i mean medical schools are gradually waking up to this but they're taking a long time to wake up to this point again i don't know what your thoughts are about that well, I would just hope that it, my only concern would be that this would be something that would be added at the last moment, kind of like another layer, like you're going to take a literature and medicine class in mm-hmm. medical school, and that's magically going to solve that gap or whatever, whatever, however you want to describe it in your in your kind of arsenal or in your in your toolbox of how you relate to your practice. But I I would like to think that that the work of looking for patterns and having a kind of aesthetic sensibility and the ability to write well and speak well and to be empathetic, that all of those things would be ideally things that you're developing throughout your entire career from your, your first years in primary school all the way up to the, the time you're leaving your, your residency. So, you know, I have a friend who's, who teaches in medical school and we have a lot of conversations along these lines about things that he tries to model that are exactly what you're describing, that they're very they're they're very nuanced and they're they're difficult to to articulate for students that have always been great at doing well on the tests and great at doing well in terms of certain diagnostic practices, but but need to find ways to develop some more of that that interactive human dynamic. That again, it doesn't come just from reading a poem. It comes from a kind of larger curiosity and sensitivity to the world. I think that's my that's my impression from my conversations with him. 
Yeah, so one, one example of this in, in my life that comes to mind, I, I went and did a, a, a fellowship at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore. I was just freshly arrived from only about four years post-qualification uh, as a doctor here in the UK. And I'm practicing psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, a very famous uh, medical school. So um, I, I had to write the first letter um, back to a doctor who referred a patient. And there's a standard practice here in Britain, which sadly may have been lost, is a medical etiquette. And the way you start a letter off, you say, many thanks for referring this charming young man, right? Two elements there. First of all, you thank the doctor for the referral, like um, they've done you some kind of favor. You say many thanks. And then you say something nice about the patient. Um, even, by the way, if the patient hasn't been particularly <laughs> nice. But you go, you know, charming or intelligent. Now, the doctors at Johns Hopkins were just knocked sideways because they were trained in a very scientific <laughs> tradition. They just said, this patient has, you know, liver disease. And this is the diagnosis. They were just knocked sideways with this preamble I threw in. And they, I mean, they loved it, right? And they all started copying me. <laughs> but, but it was interesting. They would never think, first of all, the reason why you say this charming young man is because the patient might read the letter. And it's nice uh. for the patient to feel that you've thought they were a charming young man. You know what I mean? Because it's a brutal, people are under stress, they've had some terrible diagnosis, it's a very stressful situation. But the notion mm. that you you, you, you um, complimented the patient is actually a very important part of the dynamic of making them feel like human beings. So they all began copying my letter, but it was <laughs> my opening prayer, which you know can, can be a little bit formulaic at times, but at least there's, there was some human element to the medical interaction that they would never thought about. They, they, it was a completely new way of thinking about what the, le- the whole point of the letter, actually. Um, and I so think, that may be an, a, a practical example of what we're discussing. And I think you know, one, one thing, that I, a thread that runs through the book, is that it's often through formulas that you can add a human element. So something that looks entirely formulaic can be reanimated by your, again, you're improvising or you're modifying the formula. So there's a, a classic example of, again, Erasmus, who's kind of the unspoken hero of the book or the, the underlying hero of the book. Erasmus, one of his many brilliant exercises was to say, why don't you just take the phrase that you would open, use to open a letter, kind of like your, thank you for referring this wonderful patient to me. The, the phrase for him was, your letter has pleased me greatly. So it's a totally banal phrase it's it's formulaic in the most basic sense it it could open any letter but he he ends up going through this amazing again to use your word riff the series of riffs on that phrase changing nouns for synonyms changing verbs inverting the structure of the sentence and he goes through over 140 variations of your letter has pleased me greatly how great it was to receive your letter your epistle gave me overwhelming joy he just goes on and on and that's obviously he's showing off it's a kind of stylistic fireworks and he's somewhat making a mockery of that ability to do all of that but he's also showing off and saying look you can it looks like a banal thing but you can tailor it to your particular recipient and part of the beauty of being a great artist or i would like to think a great doctor or teacher is knowing the formula and then also knowing how to adjust the formula for this particular case and this occasion and this audience and that's rhetoric at heart which is knowing how to follow the formulas and knowing when to break them because it's going to work in this particular circumstance. 
And that goes to the heart of another point I think you're making in the book about the importance of conversation and the notion that truly educated people have very interesting conversations and they take conversations seriously. And I've long believed that practically anything important in life happens through conversation. We get patients to give up smoking and save their lives by changing their behavior through a conversation, perhaps a persuasive conversation that gets their attention. Famously in Shakespeare, seduction occurs through a conversation. So um, you also place conversation and the ability to hold a conversation, a powerful conversation, an interesting conversation, as being at the heart of what an education is. It seems to me in the book. Again, any thoughts about that? Well, again, one way to think of this is that uh, those those dialogues and those dialogic practices that were hammered and really beaten into those little boys throughout their primary school education did have the kind of inadvertent byproduct of having an immense facility with spontaneous conversation that would have been practiced through imitating models and through doing at least on paper formulaic things that then you end up making your own and and you're able to make spontaneous and make rich as the occasion demands and those as i think as we can see in the world people who are able to do that are very much in demand are very much needed i have colleagues who work in the corporate world in the united states who find it very frustrating that certain kinds of hires might be very skilled on paper and have certifications and have degrees and have badges but not have that facility in conversation and working with the client or drawing out what the client actually wants or being able to write well in response to a client's request. Even something as basic as an email is is something that gives a lot of, composing an email is something that gives a lot of college graduates a challenge and it, it's really, it's not a simple thing to do. And so it's one of those cases where things that look basic on the surface are actually fundamental to very high level uh, human activity and and you know, frankly, success in the world, but you would like to think in the larger sense, success in human flourishing and, and living a full life. So one of the other things I took away from the book, and we're running out of time a little bit, and I'm just going to put one or two final questions to you. But one of the things I took away sure. from the book was my understanding of Shakespeare, because I had to study him at school. Um, we we'd, Everyone in Britain still, I think, has to do at least one Shakespearean play if you're doing English. Uh, GCSE, the first basic qualification when you get to about 15 or 16. And I did Romeo and Juliet. And um, one, one of the... Um, things that I think is badly taught about Shakespeare is that one of the points you make in the book, and I think is some statistical analysis that shows that Shakespeare uses many more thinking words than feeling words. So I never realised till I read your book, and I'm going to go back and attend more Shakespearean plays, um, is that Shakespeare is about thinking about something. I thought it was just a medieval version of a car chase in terms of a form of entertainment. But now I realize it's about something else. It's not just an entertainment. It's it's thinking as an entertainment so that something else is going on, which had never been explained to me before, this notion that a lot of what's going on in Shakespeare is thinking about something. I, I really love those moments when, you know, we, we I think we often excerpt or anthologize soliloquies as being kind of profound meditations on philosophy or life or human existence. But I actually think that one of the things he's really great at doing in such moments is allowing you to watch a character process a series of thoughts. So, you know, sometimes that can be benign and sometimes it can be malign. For instance, when you see Iago early in Othello kind of going, hmm, how could I really, really destroy Othello and and the thought comes to him or at least Shakespeare stages the thought coming to him and the process that leads to that moment which again is this is kind of improvisatory in the bad sense this is improvisatory towards bad ends but you see 
I think that's there's something very captivating about that, about looking at someone thinking through a thought or a character saying, huh, why why do we use that word bastard? Wherefore base? Why why should it be the case because of when I was conceived that I should not have inheritance rights or Falstaff saying, you know, what's honor? Huh. And kind of walking through the thought of pulling apart, teasing apart what we associate with with honor. I, I get the sense that he loved doing that. And that's among the many reasons that watching those plays or reading those plays can be captivating is watching thought staged in action. So there must have been a market, obviously, speaking here now as someone completely ignorant for his work. He wrote so many plays and there were so many put on. And these were people that were coming to his plays were very ordinary people. They weren't people who had been to the equivalent of Harvard. They were just ordinary people who turned up and enjoyed his plays. So something has gone wrong that today going to a Shakespearean play and, and, and understanding it or trying to enjoy it is seen as high art. It's seen as something not accessible to ordinary people. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, it's, you know, you, it, where are you coming from in the 16th century? Even if you're not able to read, you you do have a, a highly functioning kind of oral literacy in terms of being able to sit and listen to pretty complicated biblical exegesis for hours on end on a Sunday during a sermon or uh, dynamic, you know, dynamic ongoing relationship to the theater. If you if you go to multiple plays and you're and you watch, you go to the same company repeatedly, you have a I'm sure that you were able to gain a facility in, for instance, recognizing, you know, Shakespeare's company is one of the many things that's intriguing about Shakespeare's career is that whereas a lot of other contemporary playwrights were were what are called jobbers or or playwrights that were writing on commission, as it were, for one play and then done, but not no longstanding relationship with the company. Shakespeare does have a relationship with a theater company. And because of that, because he's invested in the company, and he's a member, he's a sharer of that company, he has an ongoing relationship with the cast, and he could tailor a particular part to a particular actor, and an audience member could get some complicated pleasure out of recognizing, like, oh yeah, that's the thing that he always does with that tall, skinny actor, or that's that's making fun of the way that this actor tends to be improvising on stage and go off cue and improvise too much and Shakespeare's actually making fun of that actor in that particular role so there's a I think a very developed sense of of a repertory audience that likely would have been able to be be aware of those kinds of high level games that that Shakespeare was playing with his acting company and his and his peers as actors as well as the audience that that could see those relationships developing over time so um one final point I want to put to you is that the point of an education, and this seems to be one of the points I think you're making in, a, in the book, is, is, is an education, the point of it is education in itself, the desire, the constant lifelong desire to educate yourself. It should leave you inspired and desiring to continue to learn long after you've left the educational institution in which you got your education. And there seems to be a fundamental failure. I see many um, people in my private practice who've been to elite institutions and studied something, let's say, like English. And I say, so what sort of books did you read when you were studying English at Oxford? And they tell me what books they read. And then I say, have you read any of those books or anything like that since? And they give me mm-hmm. a very blank look, like I'm dumb. Did they not understand they got their English degree to get a job at Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs? And so there is a failure, which is that it, these institutions do not leave people desiring to continue 
educating themselves. If anything, most people are relieved they never have to study that stuff right. again. Right. And the and the final failure, this is the most damning, is those institutions show no interest in following up what happened to their students. The only reason you get in, your your alumni institution gets in contact with you is to ask you for money. They're not <laughs> interested in where did you continue studying English? What happened? And I think all great teachers, my experience of them, is they remember their students even from 20 years back. Yes. And they're yes. interested. They want to know what happened. And the reason they remember their students from 20 years back is because they had an individual interest in each student. Um, and it's just natural that they remember them because they were interested. They don't, they don't, they don't have to go around memorizing each student. So there is, that's a fundamental indictment, isn't it, of, of the even elite educational institutions. They show no interest in the follow-up because the follow-up is the key bit. Did you continue pursuing your education? That's the only way you can know as an educational institution whether you did your job or not. Not the final grade that people got at the end. It's did they continue studying 10 years, 15 years, 25 years after they left you? And they show no interest in that question, in my experience. I think they're... I... I think, you know, one one motivating reason is that their time horizon is so short. And I've often thought that, you know, if we had world enough in time, that the way we would evaluate teachers would be exactly those long time frames of 5, 10, 15, 25 years down the line of did this person inspire you to want to do more of this rather than, at least in my world, you know, at the end of the term, all of my students are expected to evaluate the teacher often at the moment when they're most resentful of the teacher because they're still working on their outstanding projects and they don't like the grade they're about to get. But I would love to hear from that student. And I enjoy being in contact with those students five years, 10 years later when they say, oh, I can't believe, you know, I failed that class, but I, I, I've been reading Troilus and Cressida and I, I really love it. And I'm about to see a production. And that's, that's, a, that's an ongoing conversation again, that, that is very exciting and, and much more rich than the immediate deadline of you need to do these assignments to get this grade and I need to be evaluated based on whether you're happy on how you've done in this class at this moment. Well, thank you very much indeed, Scott, for a fascinating conversation. So just to run over the title of the book, it's by Scott Newstuck, uh, How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from Renaissance Education, published by Princeton University Press. Scott, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Raj. It's a real pleasure.